Church. Uh, if you're visiting with us, I'm Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be opening uh, God's Word uh, for us here in just a few minutes, but I've got a, a couple things I want to do first. Number one, this week has been such an exciting week. Uh, I have had so much adrenaline go through my body this week from all the exciting ministry we have been doing, and we left out talking about one that was really cool. And so if you were involved in mops this last week, I'd like you to stand, please. Okay, stand up. All right, these are the volunteers from our church that have been assisting with mops. My understanding is is that we had about 15 women who were not from our church. You can go ahead and sit down, ladies. Thank you. 15 women who are not from our church who were here on Monday night. Is that right? Or did I have the number wrong? It might have been 16. I heard conflicting reports. But um, this is an exciting thing. We had Awana successfully launched this week. We had MOP successfully launched this week. Um, Our small groups are getting going again. Uh, There's a lot of good stuff happening in our church. As as, uh, as I shared with Rick on on, uh, on Thursday, on Wednesday night, I got home from Awana, and I was so jazzed it took me until about 12 30 to go to sleep <laughs> I was just just excited and experiencing the joy of the lord in in a ministry that he is blessing uh it may have also helped that i uh exercise late at night uh, uh with awana <laughs> and that keeps me up when i do that but um this is exciting stuff uh, both of these programs are designed to enable us to have a format for our uh, members of our body to reach out into the community and to bring them in and to talk to them about the deep truths of the faith that we know and love. And so I wanted to recognize our MOPS ministry and our MOPS ladies as they were involved with that. Uh, The other thing is you hear Jim pray every week for uh, five people who are on our wall of fame over here. Okay, Uh, this is this poster uh, we've not talked about it in a while, but this is uh, this is what we are calling our RSI, or our Relational Sphere of Influence. In other words, people that we know uh, who do not know Jesus Christ personally. And from our perspective as a church, uh, people who do not know Jesus Christ are in terrible danger because they will spend eternity, if that state continues to the end of their life, separated from God. And so more than anything, our desire is to have people come to faith in Christ and to be given opportunities uh, to share that message. One of the best verses you can memorize on this is Colossians chapter 4, 3, and 4. Paul says, pray for me that I may speak the gospel boldly as I should. And pray also that God would open wide doors for our message. Actually, I think I've got that backwards. I think he says, pray that I might have wide doors for the message first, and then pray for me that I may proclaim it boldly as I should. And we have been praying now for over a year for people on this list that we would have opportunities as a church to, uh, to share the gospel with folks and to have them experience new life in Christ. And by the way, that list is not complete Okay, that's why it has a dotted line all the way around the circle. That new names can be added. So if you uh, want to add some new names, feel free to do so. Not right now, but 
feel free to do so um, at another time, and we will add them to our list, and we'll continue to pray that, that God will give you opportunities and that you'll have the boldness to take advantage of those opportunities. Now, the last thing I wanted to mention is, and I never do this um, at all. I mean, I think this is maybe the third time I've ever talked about it from the pulpit. But as you know, the economy is not the greatest. It's probably the worst it's been in 30 years. Uh, And that has had an impact, uh, along with some membership changes, on our bottom line. Uh, And we are looking at uh, all that we can do to save money, but also uh, all that we can do to invest wisely in ministry. We don't want to sacrifice any ministry um, in in any way due to a shortage of funds. And so if you have uh, any way to contribute uh, over and above what you are now doing, the Lord's work, we would encourage you to do that. Uh, we're about nineteen thousand uh, dollars income versus expenses in the red. Uh, that's not a position where we like to would like to finish the the year. So if you have the ability to, or the or the Lord lays on it lays it on your heart to contribute a little more than what you're now doing, we would encourage you to do that. Okay, that's all I'll say about that. And then let's get into our passage. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. I've been out of the pulpit for a couple of weeks. I'm, I have uh, saved it up, saved up my energy for this week. Uh, so I hope that uh, this is as exciting for you as it is for me. But this week we're going to look in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. We're going to talk about a Christian's testimony. Now, tes- the word testimony is a word that I heard a lot when I was a kid, uh, that you would hear... Uh, adult Christians in church talk about, oh, your testimony, and and you wouldn't want to do that because that would be bad testimony and these kinds of things. And you don't really hear Christians talk in those terms that much anymore, but it's nonetheless a, a worthy concept. Um, and, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't even really know totally what people were talking about. It, it wasn't a word that made any sense to me. It was just kind of a churchy word, you know, that the... Uh, the old Christians talk about talk this way and use this term, but I didn't really know what it meant. And what it has to do with is what message you are sending to a watching world with this, not the things that you say, but the things that you do. What message do you send, not with what you say, but what you do? Uh, and the two need to be consistent, right? Your speech and your actions ought to send the same message about who Jesus Christ is. And a number of years ago when I was a kid at youth camp, um, I heard one of the speakers share this little poem, and it kind of stuck in my brain. It goes like this. It says, You are writing a gospel chapter each day by the, words, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. People read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel? according to you, right? And that is kind of the idea behind this text that we're going to look at here this morning. So if you have your, um, have your Bibles, let me assure you that Jesus is very interested in this area of your life. What, what testimony you are speaking by how you conduct yourself. So uh, if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, 
Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. In which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, Paul begins this passage with the word therefore. And when I was in seminary, I had a professor who told me, One of the great rules of biblical interpretation is that when you see the word therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. All right. And that's true. Uh, You don't I'll I'll save you four hundred dollars a credit hour on that one. Okay, Um, the. uh, The word therefore is giving is he's about to draw a conclusion. From what preceded what he just said. Okay, Uh, what he just said, he's going to now. And the things he's going to say, going to draw a conclusion with. Okay? So, what he had just talked about, as Jim uh, walked us through here a couple of weeks ago, was that Jesus Christ uh, was humiliated in the incarnation. He left his glory in heaven with God, became incarnate as a man, which in itself is a big come down. Uh, to go from being God to being a human being. Because remember, we don't have an exalted lineage, right? We're creatures that God made out of dirt. Um, God became a man. He lived a human life, fully perfect, fully human, fully God, and went all the way through death, even death on a cross. And then Paul says that, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? Now, that is going to happen. You are and I am one day going to stand before the living God. And your mouth, along with mine, along with every other human being who has ever lived or will live, is going to stand before this one who was humiliated and exalted and bow before him and acknowledge him as Lord and God. And in light of that, Paul is going to give us some conclusions this week. In other words, he's not just telling you about some random event so that you can go, well, isn't that interesting? No. There is a moral exhortation that follows that, that makes, uh, that it, this is to not only be something that goes into your, your brain as information, but goes into your life and produces transformation. That we're to change in response to that. Now, verse uh, 12 and 13, I want to look at this here, that it ought to motivate us toward obedience. And by the way, Uh, Paul is making clear the kind of obedience that he wants. He says, it's obedience that's not dependent on me being there. 
He says, just as you have always obeyed, not just in my presence, but now in my absence. Now, one of the markers of maturity, if you're raising a child, you can write this down. One of the markers that you are producing an adult versus a child, because you know, the line at our house, Karen and I have, is we are not raising children, we are raising adults, right? They may be kids now, but the objective is not that they stay children, that they become adults. One of the markers that a kid is becoming an adult and maturing is that you are able to give them instruction and have them obey it without you standing there, right? That, you know, if I, have, if I tell my daughter or my son, go downstairs and clean the basement, that they understand, first of all, what that instruction means, and that number two, they apply themselves with due diligence to carrying it out, right? That I don't go down there and still find 77 pillows scattered all over the room, right? Uh, or trains, you know, in every nook and cranny of the bookshelf, right? I can go down there and it's clean. Why? Because they have obeyed even in my absence, right? And Paul says that Christian maturity works identically the same way. That uh, if you are maturing and growing as a Christian, that you don't need your spiritual authority standing over you saying, you need to do this. Right? Uh, Because what you do in the absence of anybody checking up on you is who you really are. Right? They say the measure of a man is what he would do if he knew for certain he would never be found out. Right? Right? In other words, if the only person who's ever going to see you do this is God, what action step are you going to then take? If it's toward obeying God, then you are commendable and you are growing in Christ. If it's toward every other kind of rebellion against God, well, at a very minimum, you've got some growing up to do. Right? And Paul's, so Paul encourages them and exhorts them and says... You've always been obedient to obey God. Let me spur you on toward greater obedience, even now that I can't be with you. Now, there are a couple other significant truths here I want us to see in this passage. And this is the first one that's there in your notes under that uh, thing marked fear and trembling. Number one is that while we don't work for our salvation... According to Paul, we have to work out our salvation. We don't work for our salvation, but we need to work out our salvation. In other words, that there's nothing you can do or abstain from doing on the other side of it, which will get you one iota closer to a relationship with God of your own steam. Okay? Uh, you can't do enough good things. You can't give enough money to the church, although we would appreciate that. Um, okay. You can't uh, be nice enough to little old ladies. Uh, you can't uh, give enough food to the food pantry, although they would appreciate that. Okay. You can't do whatever is on your list of things that good people do. You can't do enough of them to gain your salvation. Okay, one of the illustrations that I have 
uh, use sometimes is suppose that you and me and Michael Phelps go over to San Francisco and decide we're going to jump in the bay and swim to Japan. Now, um, look at me, okay? I am not a fine physical specimen, all right? Despite what my wife might tell you. Um, love is blind, after all, right? Um, okay, uh, and maybe you are in great shape. Maybe you go swimming at the pool every day, and you do three or four miles in the pool, okay? Great. And Michael Phelps, I'm, I'll assure you, he'll whoop anybody in this room at swimming, right? Um, now, we all decide we're going to swim for Japan. Now, I'm going to drown first, okay? <laughs> right? And maybe you'll probably be next, okay? And Michael probably makes it maybe 50, 60 miles offshore, okay? Now, what's the problem? Still got several thousand miles to go, right? We do not need uh, swim lessons. We do not need uh, a better... Uh, you know, water wings, you know, that are going to get it for us. It's not going to work. We're going to die long before we get there. Why? It's not physically possible for a human to do this. You can't do it. What you need is an alternate method to get you from point A to point B. You need an airplane. You need a boat, one or the other, right? You need some, some, something else to carry you along the way, Right? And the same thing is true with reference to the standard of God's righteousness and our ability to be righteous. It is so incredibly far distant from the most holy human person to attain the righteousness of God that you might be able to jump higher than me, but you might as well say we're going to jump to the moon. I don't care what your vertical leap is, you're not going to get there. Even if you've got rocket boots, <laughs> okay? It doesn't matter. It's too far. And you can't work for your salvation. You can't get there from here. God has to bestow it on you as a gift. You need a means outside of yourself to empower you to get there. Okay? Uh, and that means is supplied by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at that moment, he justifies you. In other words, he declares you righteous before God. And so when you stand before God, you stand innocent of all your sin. Okay? That's step one of salvation. Step three of salvation is what's called glorification. Glorification is what we talk about when we're sharing the gospel with somebody. And we say, if you believe in Jesus Christ, when you die physically, you will live eternally and stand in the presence of God. You will go to heaven. You know, whatever the terminology you want to use is, that's glorification. When you stand before God, acceptable and cleansed of your sin. Okay? Now, step two of salvation is what he's talking about here in this text of working out your salvation. Of, of what well, the theological word for it is sanctification. That there is a, pro, there is a progress uh, toward being holy. That you start from where you are as a converted pagan and move toward being holy and looking like God in this life. Now, that process is not complete until you do stand before God. But there is a process, and you are to advance, and it does take effort. It takes effort to make this happen. 
Now, in Greek mythology, there were, um, there, if you read the story of the Odyssey, some of you probably had to suffer through that in college or in high school, and it's this journey that a guy named Odysseus is on, okay, trying to get home from the Trojan War, and one of the dangers he encounters is uh, called Scylla and Charbidus, okay? And Charbidus is this giant whirlpool that sucks down the boat uh, to the bottom of the ocean, if you go into that. And on the other side of it is Scylla, this three-headed monster. And if you sail too close to her, she eats three of your sailors. So which would you like to do? Pick your poison. You've got to go through here some way, right? And you don't, by the way, get to pick which three sailors it's going to be, so one of them might be you, boat captain, right? Uh, and there, in the same way, there are two equal dangers that Christians sometimes get into uh, and when, it, when we talk about working out your salvation. One danger, and it's a bad one, is called legalism. Okay? Legalism is this idea that there is some system of rules out there, some, some long list of, with boxes that I can check off, that if I check off all the boxes, then I therefore arrive at some magical spot called the righteousness of God. Okay, and I just, you know, come up with my list, whatever it is, you know, uh, when I was a kid, it was I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. Um, okay, but you come up with your list, okay, I don't play cards with face cards on them, you know, whatever the list is, okay, I play rook, but not, not regular cards, that would be unholy. Okay, these kinds of things, right? Now, some of you are old enough to remember when that was, that was real, Christians actually thought that, okay? Oh, but you come up with your list, and you check off all the boxes. And as long as you're keeping all your boxes checked off, then you view yourself as righteous before God. That's legalism. And it's slavery. And you will wind up in one of two places. You will either wind up proud of, look at all the things that I do and all the sins I avoid. Or you will wind up despairing because you can't even keep your own list. Okay, legalism is a dangerous, dangerous trap. Okay, now the other side of it, the other thing that will eat your life as a Christian is kind of the attitude of let go and let God. Okay, now that seems a little more subtle because there's no list. But you just say, well, I'm just going to sit back. I'm not going to make any effort myself towards sanctification. I'm just going to say that God is going to do all the work and I'm going to sit. Okay? But that is not what the text says. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's verse 12. That's your part. God's part, verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. In other words, who works? Does God work or do you work? Yes. It's like if somebody asks me if I want chocolate or vanilla. Yes. All right. Does God work or do you work? Yes. Does God supply the energizing power? Yes, he does. Do you work out your salvation? Yes, you do. Not your eternal salvation. In other words, um, whether or not you wind up in the presence of God, but your day-to-day transformation to look like Christ. That takes effort. That takes change. Uh, Let me give you a commentary uh, on this, okay? This is from John Murray. You've got to hang with this because this guy's a little... A little technical, 
He's a little smarter than me, but I excerpted this here, okay? Uh, God's working in us is not suspended because we work, nor are working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we did ours, so that the conjunction or the coordination both produce the desired result. God works and we work. But the relation is that because God works, we work. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. The more persistently we are in, we are in working, active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. Let me summarize here. It's because God has been working in us by his Holy Spirit that we have the desire to change and grow to be like Christ. And since that's true, and since God continues to work in us after he has started, so that we have increasingly the desire to grow and be like Christ, and then we then take steps to change, the work is all of God, even though it's done by us. Okay? In other words, the longer you're a Christian, the more you realize the less you had to do with your salvation and your sanctification. Okay? That, that I change not because I'm so wonderfully significant and special, but because God has been at work. And since God has been at work, he has given me the desire to change. He has given me the power to change. He's given me the motivation to change. And I change, and I have done something, but why? And, and through what means? Through the Holy Spirit being at work in my life. And we both work, but it's God's power that creates the change and creates even the desire to change. And so, in other words... Divine sovereignty and human responsibility come together and intermesh at precisely this point. Okay? The harder we work to change, the more we realize that any growth that actually happens is a result of the Holy Spirit being at work in our hearts prior to our decision. Right? And any permanent change that is produced is something He produced in us. Now, the other... The other major truth I want you to see in this in these first two verses is with reference to these words fear and trembling. A lot of a lot of Christians when they see the word fear associated with God, they want to downgrade that to something like reverential awe. Okay? I think it means fear. Fear of God. Let's keep this in mind, okay? You are going to stand one day before the living God, the creator of the universe. And yes, he loves you. And yes, his son died on the cross for your sins. And yes, his Holy Spirit indwells you. But you are nevertheless standing before the creator of the universe. And that is an awesome thing. Let me give you just an illustration on that, okay? A week ago Saturday, I was down at the Peoria Zoo 
with my kids. Uh, we love, we all love to go down and see the animals. And that new Africa exhibit, if you've not seen it, is really cool. All right? And we are standing at the lion cage. And they have got the lions loose in there. And you can see the rocks and so forth coming down. And, and you, the lions can't get to you, but they've got glass between you and, and it, the lion pit is right at ground level. Okay? And while we're standing there looking, these two lions, within about five minutes of one another, they come walking up. And all that separates me from the lion is about two inches of heavy glass and about four inches of air. And they're just walking. And you can see all the muscles ripple under the skin. You can see when they open their mouth, which they did, those great big fangs that they have. You don't realize this, but a lion's claw, if you hook it around like that, is the same length as my index finger. Okay, when that sucker comes out that long at the end of his pad. They weigh somewhere between 350 and 500 pounds. You got one that's not been watching his Big Mac intakes, okay? And they, when they look at you, they look at you with these yellow predator eyes. And they look at you and think, hairless baboon. <laughs> okay? You know, or as the old Far Side cartoon goes, you know, with the two crocs laying on the on the bank patting their bellies you know that one oh, that was awesome you know no horns no bones no nothing just soft and pink you know and that's what a lion looks at and thinks when he sees you with these predator eyes right and i gotta tell you as i'm standing there and the lion is right here that there's a a lot of awe certainly isn't it amazing that god made that creature but there's just a little bit of fear Mixed in there, too. I'm sure glad that sucker is separated by that glass. Now, imagine this. Imagine that instead of being on this side of the glass, you're on the other side. Is there awe? Yeah. Is there fear? Uh-huh. Okay. There, You better believe there is. And that is just being in the presence of a, of a lion, a creature that God made. So why do we assume that just because God loves us, that being in the presence of the lion of the tribe of Judah will be a less fearful experience? And Paul is saying this, okay? In light of the fact that you're going to stand before God, you need to be motivated with fear and trembling to a certain degree to work out your salvation because we are all going to stand before him. Now, the other side of that, of course, is yes, God loves us. Yes, we don't need to be terrified that God is going to destroy us. He's not. He loves us. We're his children. But remember who it is that we're going to stand before. It's the one who makes things like lions. Okay? Fear and trembling. Now, verse 14 to 18, we've got just a few minutes left here. Paul gives this beautiful image 
of believers' lives shining like stars. He says, in which you shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. Uh, Some things never change, do they? If Paul's generation was crooked and depraved, is ours crooked and depraved? Yep, you bet. And the idea is, is that you are, as a believer in Jesus Christ, to give off light in a dark spot. You go outside, you can still do this in Chile, which is one of the really cool things about living here. You can go outside on a cloudless night and you can see stars. You can see a lot of stars. And otherwise, it's black dark, but there's all these pinpricks of light all over the sky. And Paul says that in the midst of a world that has gone dark, that believers in Jesus Christ are to be these pinpricks of light everywhere that you see them. We're to shine like stars. And he's going to give us some practical instruction on what that looks like. First one, do everything without complaining or arguing. And we make our kids memorize that verse at our house. All right? (laughs) And it's a good verse for them to memorize. Do everything without complaining or arguing. But it's a good verse for us as believers in Christ who are adults to apply also. Because the fact is, is that complaining and arguing is based on pride and selfishness. Right? I don't want to do what God says, so I complain. Right? Why don't I want to do what God says? Because I'm proud, and I think I know a better way. Or because I'm selfish, and, I, and that would require sacrifice on my part. Okay? Um, we're not content to obey and follow God, and so we say, well, I'm going to do it my own way. Or I'm not going to follow the leaders that God appointed for me. Why not? Because I think I can do it better than they can. I'm not going to obey the boss that God put over me at work. Why not? Well, because I'm proud and I'm selfish. And I want it my way. Right? Paul says that one of the big markers of growing in Christ is that we're able to do everything without complaining and arguing. Without having to have everything tilt our direction. Okay? Um, and he says if we do that, then we'll become pure and blameless. Why? Because when you can do everything without complaining and arguing, it's because you have eliminated the pride and selfishness that are at the root of the complaining and arguing. You don't complain and argue because you're pure and blameless. You complain and argue because you're prideful and selfish. Right? So get rid of the pride and selfishness, and then you have the pure and blameless. And you're, you have also the ability to do things without complaining and arguing about them. Um, he says on top of that, that we're to imitate godly leaders. He's wanting us to... Um, Paul says to them, essentially, you know, do the kinds of things that you're seeing me do. Live your life in a way that honors Christ, that makes a sacrifice for Christ in the way that I'm making mine. And the last thing he says here has to do with, with, with actually, he uses the image of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, uh, under the, sacri- there, the 
the Jewish sacrificial system, you had a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice of a lamb, uh, in, one in the morning and one at night. And with that sacrifice, you had grain that was offered as well as an amount of wine. And Paul compares his own sacrifice to being like the wine that's added to make the sacrifice of the lamb complete. And he's referring to the Philippian sacrifice that they're making as being like the lamb. And he's just the, the side dish, in a sense, uh, that goes along with it. But he says, make the sacrifice worth it. He says, I want to be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. I talk to a lot of people who are involved in full-time ministry, either as missionaries or as pastors or in some other capacity. And one of the fears that's common to everybody who is in that kind of a position is this that they're going to get to the end of their life and it's not going to have counted for anything. Maybe that's the fear some of you have. You're going to get to the end of your life and there's going to be nobody that you can point to following along behind you whose life was changed as a result of you being in it. Nobody who's come to Christ because of your testimony of your life and your message. Nobody who's life has been affected by your ministry nobody whose life is forever different because you were there and that's one of the big fears common to people involved in ministry i hope it's a fear actually that you have whether you're in full-time ministry or not that you want your life to count and paul says look i've made a lot of sacrifices here and he has it's because of the sacrifices paul has made that the Philippian church even exists, right? I mean, how did the Philippian church get started? You remember? Paul starts preaching. He gets flogged in prison, leads the jailer to Christ. Right? And he also had Lydia that responded to the preaching before the beating. But it's not a, it's, it's not a painless start to the church. And it's because of Paul's sacrifice that this church even exists to write the letter to. And he says, make, make my sacrifice worth it. In other words, I don't want to die and go into glory and find out that all of you folks didn't obey Jesus. That's his point. And as we wrap up here, there's a couple things I just want to, um, just want to, Talk to us about by way of application. And that's one. Okay. Consider the list of people in your life. Who have had influence on you spiritually. Okay. Maybe it's been. A Sunday school teacher. It was a Sunday school teacher who led me to faith in Christ. When I was four years old. Little blue chairs. Over at Grace Church in Indianapolis. Green carpet. It was the 70s, you know. Green carpet, orange walls. It was great, okay. Blue chairs were a nice accent. But I remember that scene. Mrs. Weathers, who's with the Lord now, Marge Weathers, shared with us little guys in this little Sunday school class about what it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe. I would not be here today if it weren't for Mrs. Weathers. Right? 
Maybe it's an elder in a church. Maybe it's your pastor. Maybe even this pastor. Who knows? Um, Maybe it's uh, a missionary. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's your dad. But consider there's a list with all of us of people in our lives who have sacrificed certain things to make our faith in Christ possible and growing and living. And then look at your own life and say, well, let me give you an example that everybody can relate to. Consider Jesus who came down from heaven to become incarnate as a man to die even death on a cross so that you and I could have salvation to begin with. And consider these people who are making sacrifices and have made sacrifices on your behalf. And consider this. Looking at my life, is the sacrifice they made worth it? And if the answer is no, or, well, maybe, then probably there are some things that need to change about the way that you are working out your salvation. So that when you come to the end of your life, that their sacrifice was worth it. Okay? Second thing here. How are you progressing in working out your salvation? Let me ask some questions. Do you have a deeper hunger now for, uh, for God? Do you have a deeper hunger for God now than you did a year ago or five years ago? Is that a growing thing that you have to be in the presence of God? What about God's word and your relationship to it? Are you increasingly governed by God's word? Do you find bigger and bigger areas that you are bringing under submission to what God's word says? Do you increasingly recognize God's grace and empowerment in every good thing that you do? It wasn't me who did that. It was God working in me and through me, change me. Let's pray.